Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Laura Landon. The song you're hearing is called Canada by the late orchestra leader and trumpeter Bobby Jimby. He wrote the song for Canada's 100th birthday celebrations in 1967. It earned him the nickname the Pied Piper of Canada. The tune caught the optimistic, upbeat mood of the mid-1960s, when the Canadian economy was booming and governments were pouring money into social programs, such as national health care, improved old-age pensions, and more generous social assistance benefits. They were also improving what Canadians call equalization. It's a program that redistributes wealth collected from taxpayers in richer provinces, such as Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia, to governments in poorer provinces, such as Manitoba, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. Equalization is meant to ensure that no matter where they live, all Canadians receive comparable levels of public services, including health care, education, and welfare, without having to pay higher taxes than in other parts of the country. Equalization is enshrined in the Canadian Constitution, but according to a new book, Canada's commitment to the idea behind it is fading. The book, Equal as Citizens, The Tumultuous and Troubled History of a Great Canadian Idea, is by the Canadian journalist Richard Starr. He writes that the federal government in Ottawa is now transferring more money to the richer provinces on a per capita basis than to the poorer ones. As a result, citizens in poorer provinces are paying higher taxes and receiving lower levels of government services. Moreover, neoconservatives in the national media and at big think tanks are telling Canadians that the poorer provinces don't deserve federal help, that even though the poorer provinces have smaller populations and therefore fewer taxpayers to support social programs, they should stop complaining and simply pull themselves up by the bootstraps. It's a chorus that makes no sense to Richard Starr. He says the wealthy provinces got rich because they happened to have abundant natural resources. Alberta, for example, is in the midst of another oil boom. Richard Starr has worked as a journalist, civil servant, broadcaster, political staffer, and policy advisor. His other books include a biography of the late New Brunswick Premier Richard Hatfield and Power Failure, a history of energy development in Nova Scotia. Richard Starr is married to former Member of Parliament Wendy Lill, who was also a well-known Canadian playwright. They live in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, where Richard Starr sat down for an interview with New Books Network contributor Bruce Wark. Richard, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. You're welcome. I I welcome the opportunity. Your book is called Equal as Citizens, and uh, what do you mean uh, by equal as citizens? (laughs) 
Well, I guess the the uh, the the issue of equality is um, huge in any country, and there's a lot of emphasis, on, of course, on economic equality among classes, among races. Um, when we look at the issues surrounding, for example, the dreadful treatment of our Aboriginal people. But I'm taking a somewhat narrower view of the question of uh, equalist citizens, and I'm looking specifically at government services, public services, the availability of public services. And I think the idea that of equalist citizens was fairly has been fairly well summed up by Michael Ignatieff, the former liberal leader, who uh, participated in a debate in uh, in Calgary uh, a couple of years back. And uh, essentially he said that the level of public services available shouldn't depend on your postal code. And I think that sums up the idea of equal as citizens. Let's explore that a bit in the Canadian context. Um, why is there a problem, a problem that uh, would require you to write a book about it? Well, I guess the problem is that we have a, uh, a constitutional responsibilities that um, uh, have been given to or acquired by the provinces over time, but uh, they don't necessarily have the uh, the economic wherewithal, the uh, fiscal capacity uh, to provide those services. Uh, most notably, education, uh, going back many, many years, is a clear provincial responsibility. And we um, uh, history is uh, replete with examples of how um, the poorer provinces had, had a much poorer level of education with results that we're probably uh, still uh, still living with in Canada. And more recently, of course, health care, which uh, many Canadians see as a, a crucial part of the Canadian identity. Uh, nevertheless, health care is uh, at least 75% paid for by, by provincial governments. And those provincial governments have different capacities um, in, in, in terms of their ability to provide those services. Well, we're sitting here in Nova Scotia, one of the Atlantic provinces, and I, I would think that, uh, judging from what you say in your book, that Nova Scotia is one of those poorer provinces that has had problems funding health and education. Yes, and um, certainly in, in, in uh, recent years, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but in recent years, that problem has become uh, more and more pronounced. H historically, our, for example, with, uh, with our uh, education system, um, as, as early as um, the, you know, the 1910s, uh, Nova Scotia politicians were complaining about the fact that uh, teachers in Western Canada, for example, were getting paid three or four times what they could afford to pay their teachers in Nova Scotia, so they were losing their best teachers to, uh, to, to other provinces. In subsequent years, there were significant gaps in the level of uh, health services available to, uh, to people in Nova Scotia and other Atlantic provinces, as well as the prairie provinces, fewer doctors, fewer nurses, fewer hospitals, uh, uh, th those kinds of things. Um, we've made efforts over the years to catch up, but uh, currently um, we're moving, I would say, in the, in the opposite direction. And the ability, the future ability of, um, of the uh, less wealthy provinces to provide services, healthcare services in particular, uh, to an aging population is in considerable jeopardy. From Equal as Citizens by Richard Starr.
Provincial funding for autism spectrum disorder varies widely across the country. A survey by the Library of Parliament in 2006 found the proverbial patchwork of service. Alberta offered more than $40,000 per child annually for treatment, generating media reports about families moving from other provinces, especially Saskatchewan, to take advantage. Ontario was spending about $10 per capita on services for autistic children. Prince Edward Island and New Brunswick were spending about $3 per capita. There are other examples where there is a direct correlation between provincial fiscal capacity and services. For instance, a report by the Canadian Institute for Health Information found that care for diabetics was almost non-existent in the Atlantic provinces in the middle of the first decade of the 2000s. Another report from March 2012 revealed that wait times for hip and knee replacements were increasing across Canada. The longest waits were in the Maritime provinces in Manitoba, the shortest in Ontario. You're listening to an interview with Canadian journalist Richard Starr about his new book, Equal Citizens, The Tumultuous and Troubled History of a Great Canadian Idea. The interviewer is Bruce Wark. You write in your book that uh, after Confederation, 1867, it took uh, more than 80 years for the politicians to build a transfer system from the richer to the poorer provinces. Um, Why did it take so long? Well, I think part of it was that... um governments during that period didn't provide much in the way of of public services. So there wasn't a a large demand by citizens to uh, provide those kinds of services. It was was only in the... in the 1920s that people in the uh, uh, poorer regions uh, started to realize that people in other places were getting things like old age pensions and mother's allowances and those kinds of beginnings of the welfare state and they weren't getting them. So provincial politicians started to feel uh, some, some demand from citizens for those kinds of services. That, that's, that's part of it. I don't think the political pressure was there for anybody to do much. Of course, the other part of it, it was the whole unequal arrangement of, uh, of, uh, of political power in the country. I mean, we had the, uh, the, the, the four uh, initial partners in Confederation were Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. And so the, the, the less wealthy provinces were outnumbered numerically. Uh, so any, uh, any pressure that provincial premiers would put on for additional funding was easily disregarded, except in, uh, in, in certain uh, political circumstances where suddenly it was important to, to, uh, to court political support and votes in, in some of those poorer regions. Yeah, you, you're, you're referring, I guess, to the what is now Ontario and Quebec with huge populations and then small populations in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. Yeah, and I mean, Ontario's attitude, and I don't, um, I don't want to get into Ontario bashing, but I think it's, it's fairly clear that, that Confederation was a scheme that was dreamed up by Ontario politicians primarily for the benefit of on, Ontario. Quebec saw some, some benefit in it as well, um, believing that they could uh, have some influence and support from, uh, you know, from New Brunswick and Nova Scotia initially and eventually uh, Prince Edward Island to offset the kind of imperialistic uh, uh, dreams of Ontario. But uh, it, it was very much an, an Ontario uh, project, and there was uh, you know, significant political forces in Ontario, particularly in the, in the Liberal Party of George Brown and, and uh, 
and Mr. Blake that um, were not interested in sharing sharing any of their wealth with the uh, with the eastern provinces with the poorer provinces. Now, the system that was eventually set up, um, an equalization formula and transfer of uh, money for social programs, came in the mid-50s. You've already mentioned some of the factors that uh, led to that, but let's just talk about them in more detail. Um, What happened in the years before the mid-50s in Canada that uh, made a, a transfer system seem like a good and workable idea? Well, mainly what happened and, and brought this into um, into focus was the depression and the the, the impact of, of the Great Depression on the prairies, where you know the problem was the collapse in, in grain prices, and so what had previously been a fairly prosperous area and uh, uh, an area that. At, at the time, in the years prior to that, uh, politicians of the Maritimes had looked at with some envy, um, suddenly became an economic basket case. So the federal government, which was always reluctant to uh, provide much in the way of funding to the provinces up to that point, were forced to do something to help out Saskatchewan and Manitoba in particular, but, but Alberta as well. So that was number one. And out of out of what happened, uh, out of the dire financial situation that existed on the on the prairies in particular, but also across the country, um, we had what became known as the Royal Sirwalk Commission, and it was I, in the in the book I, I I praise it as a just a great sort of spin free source of information uh, on what was going on in Canada at the time and on the defects of the uh, of the uh, fiscal uh, the, the fiscal system that had developed in Canada at the time Rolls-Royce had hearings across the country between 1937 and 1940 they produced a report which essentially said that um, we need a we need a system whereby the the federal government can transfer tax revenues from taxpayers in prosperous provinces to provinces that do not have the fiscal capacity to provide uh, a comparable level or they call it a normal level of um, of public services to their to their citizens now interestingly from a maritime perspective those kind of ideas had been emerging in Nova Scotia in the years prior to the Rolls-Royce commission and in particular, Angus L. Macdonald, who was the long-serving premier of Nova Scotia, had made a similar case earlier in the 30s. So a lot of the ideas that Rolls-Royce um, carried forward had originally come from from uh, from Angus L. Macdonald and the uh, and the Nova Scotia Liberal government at the time. Now, in 1940, when those ideas came forward, of course, Canada was already at war. The large provinces, the rich provinces, if you will, British Columbia and surprisingly uh, Alberta and uh, Ontario and Quebec, um, for different reasons, were were not keen on the idea. So the the uh, proposals didn't go anywhere during that time. However, accompanied uh, with that, the feds had to move into a greater level of taxation to support the war. In order to do that, they had to get the provinces to back out or there would have been double taxation. So the provinces essentially rented their their uh, tax room uh, to uh, to the feds so the feds could prosecute the war effort. 
So those two things together, the rural Sirwa ideas and sort of the basic uh, necessity of, of, of increasing the role of the federal government and, 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 uh, uh, and federal revenue, combined so that by reconstruction in, uh, after the war in 19, 1945, there was a, a desire at the federal level to maintain some of that uh, economic control and uh, and out of that desire, they developed a uh, a permanent system of uh, of transfers that uh, kind of took ten ten twelve years for it to get to take final shape. But the forces that led to it were specifically the depression, followed by the war, followed by an ideological shift in in uh, in the post war period. That um, a uh, the sort of the Keynesian idea that the federal government had to have a greater control over the economy to um, to regulate things to to prevent the kind of destruction that it caused by the depression, plus the fact that you know coming out of the war there was a move to the left politically in Canada the, uh, the CCF which had been formed in the, in the 1930s was picking up traction. Uh, they were bringing forward a lot of the ideas that were current in, in the UK at the time uh, around the welfare state. And uh, so for, I could say, political reasons, the, the governing liberals uh, decided that they needed not only to, uh, to exercise control over the greater, exercise, greater control over the economy, they also needed to look at some social programs that, because they were national, would be national in scope and would, uh, would benefit all Canadians. You're listening to an interview with Canadian journalist Richard Starr, author of Equal as Citizens, The Tumultuous and Troubled History of a Great Canadian Idea. The official launch for the book was held in Halifax, Nova Scotia on September 4, 2014. Former Member of Parliament Wendy Lill welcomed those who attended the launch. Thank you for coming tonight. We are hoping that we have a lively discussion tonight about the ideas that are presented in this book that we're uh, launching Equal as Citizens, uh, The Tumultuous and Troubled History of a Great Canadian Idea. The book illuminates how our regional characteristics and interprovincial grievances have developed, and it challenges us to consider what it means to be a Canadian. It's gutsy, it's carefully researched piece of work. Believe me, it's carefully researched. I have been involved in this for years. <laughs> um, I think it really rebalances the discourse uh, in a very much needed way. That was former Member of Parliament Wendy Lill, welcoming people to the official launch of the new book, Equal as Citizens. Wendy Lill is also married to Richard Starr, and they live in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. You're listening on the New Books Network to an interview with Richard Starr, conducted by Bruce Wark. Richard Starr, uh, you point out in your book, Equal as Citizens, that uh, this idea of transferring wealth from the richer provinces to the poorer ones sort of came out of uh, a movement toward a stronger federal government during the war, out of the experience of dire poverty in some regions during the Depression, um, and so we get in in the mid fifties, nineteen fifty seven, a kind of formal uh, program set up uh, to transfer this wealth. What happened after that in Canada? 
Okay, I just want to correct one thing. Yeah. The, the, the equalization is not a transfer from richer provinces to poorer provinces. What it is is the federal government collects probably a little more taxes than it needs to uh, in order to fund a program, a, a transfer program. Everybody contributes, anybody who pays federal taxes um, contributes to the equalization program. We all, we all pay for health care. It's just that when I... I pay my my taxes for health care. You pay your taxes for health care, but there aren't enough millionaires in in, in Nova Scotia, so that when it, all is said and done, our capacity is less. So if we're going to have a certain level of health care, we need help from the from the federal government. I mean, that's sort of the so it's not there's no interprovincial transfers of any of this stuff. It's it's a it's a question of certain provinces have greater fiscal capacity. Newfoundland is a good example. Uh, until Newfoundland struck oil, Newfoundland's fiscal capacity was about 65% of the national average. It struck oil, all kinds of royalties flowed into the Newfoundland treasury. Its fiscal capacity is now about 125% of the, of the national average. But all that means is that Newfoundland doesn't get equalization payments anymore. Um, there's no more money leaving Newfoundland in that sense, and Newfoundlanders aren't sending checks to Ontario. <laughs> right, right. So that um, although it might be fun if they did. Yeah. The the uh, the other idea in your book, the crucial one here, is that um, not only healthcare in Nova Scotia, but healthcare in Nova Scotia that will be comparable to healthcare in the richer province of Alberta or Ontario. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of two parts to that uh, that question, whether it's healthcare or any other public service. And, and the first part is, as a Canadian citizen, uh, is it your right to, to, to expect the same level of healthcare in Nova Scotia that you get in Ontario? And if you believe that that is the case, but the, the province in which you happen to reside doesn't have the fiscal capacity to, to provide that, then yes, that's an argument for a federal transfer so that so that you can get that. So that's that's a federal transfer that helps me if I stay in Nova Scotia. But that federal transfer, and this was noted by you know the Royal Sirwell Commission back back at the time, that transfer also benefits, uh, say, a province like Alberta, which can afford um, better health care for its citizens. Uh, and that better health care can theoretically, and in fact, in some instances does, attract people from Nova Scotia or New Brunswick or wherever to go and take advantage of that uh, better level of health care in Alberta. And that means that the people in Alberta are further back in the queue. I mean, so they are benefiting as well from a, from a, a transfer system that enables citizens to stay where they are and move for economic reasons. I mean, that's the other part of it. You know, in our system, uh, it, it's 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 a given, I suppose, that you move from one part of the country to the other uh, for for to get jobs, and we consider that to be a good thing most times. Although, if you've been in a traffic jam in Toronto lately, you'd wonder about that. But we do consider that a good thing. Uh, but we don't consider it a good thing to have people moving from one region to the other to take advantage of more lucrative or more uh, more generous. Um, uh, public services in another place. 
Richard Starr, in, in your book, uh, Equal as Citizens, you talk about uh, some very good years in Canada, years that uh, just doesn't get better than that, I suppose, starting in the late 50s and into the 1960s. What happened in that period? Well, actually, the momentum for those decades happened in uh, it, it, briefly in the post-war period. I mean, they had the Reconstruction Conference. And if you read those transcripts, you think, my goodness, the, the kind of things that the federal government was talking about at that Reconstruction Conference, we can only dream about today. They were talking about a national health care system, 60% funded by the, by the federal government. Today, it's 25%. Um, so those ideas that, that came up at that post-war conference kind of went underground for 10 years. The, the, the uh, Mackenzie King in particular and then his successor, uh, uh, Louis Saint Laurent, looked around and said, hey, wait a minute, there's nobody, there's not massive unemployment that we expected to have. Uh, the barbarians are not at the gates. The doctors don't like Medicare anymore, although they, they did after the war. They were, they were calling for it, but the doctors had changed their view. So all of this stuff uh, just kind of disappeared for 10 years. But... When the Liberals were defeated, oddly enough, um, that old red Tory, John Diefenbaker, kind of picked up, uh, picked up that mantle and started taking some of those ideas. Now, of course, he was prodded along by Tommy Douglas in Saskatchewan, the, the CCF Premier of Saskatchewan, who had been elected in 19, 1944, and was moving ahead on things at that time with, uh, with health insurance. Um, Diefenbaker followed that, uh, followed that path and... Uh, and uh, introduced hospital insurance back in the in the 1950s, and um, under Diefenbaker, the equalization program, which had not been called that after the uh, after the war, but amounted pretty much to the same thing, was improved and and formalized, and had the consent at that time of of both uh, Quebec and Ontario. So so it 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 became an entrenched program. When Diefenbaker was defeated in 1963, equalization was again an issue in the campaign, and the Liberals were promising to improve it by essentially raising the standard to which all provinces would uh, would go. Um, and the uh, I think the, the Liberals um, essentially said, "We you know we're, we're going to we're going to bring about more equalization by uh, raising to the standard of the top two provinces rather than the average." So. In effect, uh, there was uh, there was that thrust in the 63, 63 election. Of course, that was followed by the introduction of the Canada Pension Plan uh, a couple of years later, uh, and finally, uh, well, not finally, by 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 Medicare in that started to be implemented in our around our centennial year sixty seven sixty eight and up up to about nineteen seventy. And I think the the sort of the final spasm, if you will, was the the unemployment insurance. Uh, Changes that uh, were brought in under the Trudeau government in uh, in 1971, which was essentially a um, a step back from the notion of a guaranteed annual income. They had they had been toying with the idea there was there was support for the idea of a guaranteed annual income, but the Feds figured it was too expensive, so they essentially re- redesigned the unemployment insurance program so that it kind of operated that way. From Equal as Citizens, The Tumultuous and Troubled History of a Great Canadian Idea by Richard Starr. In 1971, the Trudeau government introduced major changes to unemployment insurance that moved the program firmly, if briefly, in the direction of income support and poverty reduction. 
In his book, From UI to EI, Waging War on the Welfare State, author Georges Campeau described the changes of 1971 as the centerpiece of Trudeau's Just Society. They were taken as a less expensive alternative to a guaranteed annual income and as a way around anticipated provincial objections. The reforms extended coverage to almost the entire workforce, established an eight-week eligibility period, raised regular benefits significantly, and introduced sickness, maternity, and retirement benefits. As a sign of the shift of emphasis from insurance to income support, the government increased its contribution to the UI fund, raising its share of the program cost from 19 to 44 percent. With inflation, an expanded labor force, and a 40% increase in the rate of unemployment also playing a role, unemployment insurance benefits burgeoned between 1970 and 1978. The five easternmost provinces experienced by far the largest increases. As with many initiatives of the late Pearson early Trudeau years, the Liberals balked at the first sign of trouble, scaling back the ambitious reforms amid media reports of program abuse and worries about the government's deficit. What would become a steady stream of reforms began in 1977, with reduction in benefits and tougher eligibility requirements. You're listening to an interview with Canadian journalist Richard Starr about his new book, Equal Citizens, the tumultuous and troubled history of a great Canadian idea. The interviewer is Bruce Wark. We've talked about those years of the 1960s when um, government, the federal government, with the support of the provinces, brought in several social programs, including Medicare, Canadian health care. And then into the 70s, the early years of Pierre Trudeau's liberal government, what happened to that uh, sense of uh, elation that Canadians felt around their centennial in 1967? What happened in the 70s that, I don't know if you agree with this, but your book seems to suggest that undermined the ideal of having a country where the citizens are equal and receive uh, comparable levels of service? Well, there were a lot of bad things that happened (laughs) happened in the 1970s. I mean, it started off with the October crisis in uh, in 1970. The uh, kidnapping um, and murder of a Quebec politician by the uh, FLQ in in Quebec, a a terrorist group devoted to... uh, the independence of Quebec. So, uh, and the response, the the federal government's response, um, put put aside any notion that Pierre Trudeau was some kind of flower child. He basically declared the War Measures Act and locked up all kinds of people who had absolutely nothing to do with the uh, with the FLQ. So that sort of any kind of rosy glow that was left over from from uh, the centennial celebrations kind of went with that, but. Uh, in the long term, I think the the uh, the more significant development we started to see the emergence of the think tanks, the right wing think tanks, the neoconservative think tanks, uh, and that uh, started primarily in 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 the U.S. Um, but and and also in the U.K. and we got you know Margaret Thatcher as a result there. But it started to it started to spread into Canada, and um, so we. Uh, there was in, in the public sphere anyway. Increasingly, people were commentators, pundits, uh, intellectuals of various self-described intellectuals of various sorts. Uh, we're, you know, we're questioning this whole welfare state project. You know, we can't afford it anymore. Now, 
to, to, to sort of prove their point, the world economy went into a, a bit of a, a bit of a, a tailspin. Um, I don't. I can't. I'm not qualified to get into the details of what happened to the post-war uh, economy, except to say that um, it probably was kind of on steroids after the end of the uh, Second World War, and the effect of the steroids um, wore off, and there was inevitably some uh, some decline in the uh, the American economy, and it dragged the Canadian economy down with it. Some of the other economies at the time, Japan, Italy, recovering from the war, did quite did quite well, but. American and Canadian dominance, which had existed in the in the in the fifties and in the sixties, which helped to finance and 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 make possible the the beginnings of the welfare state in Canada, uh, that dominance started started to fade during that uh, period. So, you know, the neocons blamed it on too much government and came up with their own uh, their own solution. So that sort of happened on, on the intellectual level, if you will. But combined with that um, was the uh, the run up in oil prices, which had a, a positive and negative effect on Canada in that Canada had, especially in Alberta and to a lesser extent in Saskatchewan and British Columbia, had uh, significant oil and gas uh, resources so that those prices, uh, the increase in those prices added to Canada's uh, national wealth. But unfortunately, um, because resources were a provincial responsibility, m- most of the benefit accrued to the um, oil-producing provinces. So that produced a, a shift of economic power from the center, from Ontario and to some extent Quebec, to the, to the western provinces. It brought about uh, some fairly intense interregional tensions. It's funny, this uh, bumper sticker that said, let the eastern bastards freeze in the dark, if you sort of go through the media, you'll see that that's attributed to Peter Lougheed, Ralph Klein, any, any number of real people. But in fact, uh, nobody seems to know who did that. And uh, it, but it started appearing on bumper bumpers in in uh, in Alberta in about uh, in about 1975 76. Uh, and, and transfers were at the core of it. What happened was Ottawa froze the price of oil, domestic oil and put a tax on exports, collected the tax on exports, and used that tax in order to subsidize um, offshore oil in Quebec and the, and the Maritimes. The fact that uh, Quebec and the Maritimes were dependent on imports of oil was the result of a, of a direct federal policy that had been uh, brought in, in in the 1960s. So this was an unintended consequence of that particular policy. That uh, you, you, one part of the country um, could have um, been could have benefited from uh, from Canadian resources, but the other part of the country was dependent on imports. However, what the Western provinces really wanted was the world price for their oil, right? And so that that caused huge resentment. The fact that they weren't getting the world price caused one one element of the resentment. Uh, the fact that the reason they weren't getting that price and the difference between what they were getting and what they thought they should be getting was going to Quebec and Ontario. Uh, and, and we're talking billions of dollars here. It was not, it was not insignificant. The, uh, the value of that transfer created huge tensions. Then on top of that, of course, in 1976, um, Quebec uh, elected a, an avowedly separatist government in the, uh, in the PQ. So the 70s basically 
were a bit of a mess overall, and the whole idea of uh, of building a a strong united Canada with uh, equal citizenship uh, seemed to seemed to fade away. You're listening to an interview about the book Equal as Citizens: The Tumultuous and Troubled History of a Great Canadian Idea by Richard Starr. The other thing that emerged during the 1970s and is still still with us today is the federal government essentially backed off taxes. Under John Turner as finance minister and his successor, um, they uh, did a number of tax breaks to individuals and to corporations. And as a result, one estimate is that in, in 1979, $20 billion, which at that time would have been close to 25% of the federal budget. The cost of those tax cuts was in the order of, of, of $20 billion. So when you have a federal government that's not collecting as much taxes as it, as it, as it previously had, its ability to transfer those money to the poorer provinces declines. And in fact, that's what, that's what happened. And in particular, um, the uh, health care which had been introduced with with great fanfare in the 60s into the early 70s, they almost immediately on its introduction, they were trying to find ways to save money and, and, uh, and reduce the federal transfers. That 70s concern about tax rates has continued right down to, to the present day. So what we have in Canada is sort of a half-constructed a half uh, welfare state that the federal government really was never prepared to pay for. Richard Starr, author of the book Equal as Citizens, you mentioned the tax cuts of the 1970s. And of course, with those tax cuts came rising government deficits and debt. Uh, Another factor, I suppose, in the argument against generous social programs. How did that argument play out in, in terms of the equality of all citizens in Canada, whether they be in the richer provinces or the poorer ones? Well, I mean, they had they had the, the impact that you would expect in that any demands for greater equity, uh, whether it be equity for provinces or individuals, even uh, were met with the you know we can't afford it. We lo- we'd like to do it, but look at look at our deficit. Uh, it's it's the it's the key issue. So it became uh, it became a way of uh, fending off any further attempts to increase equality of, of citizens. When your book uh, looks at the 1980s, it's kind of mixed there because something really dramatic happens in the 80s with the new constitution that Canada finally got full control of its constitution. What happened constitutionally that was significant? The one that we think about all the time is, is the Charter of Rights. I mean, that, has, and that, that is quite significant in our, uh, in our country. But as well as that, if there are just two sections down. The first 34 sections of the Constitution are essentially the Charter of, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Section 35, which is another story and probably a sadder story than, than, than Section 36, but Section 35 is, is, uh, deals with Aboriginal rights. And then uh, Section 36 is about uh, equality, of, I'd say, is about equal citizens. It's about, it's a commitment by not just the federal government, but all governments in Canada, to the provision of comparable public services at comparable rates of taxation. And that was in the Constitution of 1982. It was not controversial. So it, it, it 
is embedded in, in the Constitution, and that's very important. The difficulty is, from my perspective, is that nobody's paid much attention to it ever since. Uh, uh, citizens haven't paid a great deal of attention to it ever since. A lot of citizens and a lot of lawyers have paid attention to the first 35 sections of, of the, uh, the new Constitution, but 30, Section 36 tends to be overlooked, and its meaning tends to be, uh, tends to be overlooked. From the Canadian Constitution Act of 1982, Section 36.1. Without altering the legislative authority of Parliament or of the provincial legislatures or the rights of any of them with respect to the exercise of their legislative authority, Parliament and the legislatures, together with the Government of Canada and the provincial governments, are committed to a. promoting equal opportunities for the well-being of Canadians, b. furthering economic development to reduce disparity in opportunities, and c. providing essential public services of reasonable quality to all Canadians. Commitment Respecting Public Services Section 36.2 Parliament and the Government of Canada are committed to the principle of making equalization payments to ensure that provincial governments have sufficient revenues to provide reasonably comparable levels of public services at reasonably comparable levels of taxation. We've talked about the early 80s, uh, Richard Starr, and in your book, Equal as Citizens, you point out that uh, equality of services was given protection in the Canadian Constitution. We've talked about that. But another thing happened in the 80s. In 1984, Brian Mulroney, the Conservative Party, won a landslide majority and, and started to make changes in the country. And how did that affect the overall prospect for equality as citizens. Well, um, Mulroney, um, to be to be uh, fair and balanced about Mulroney, his 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 record is a bit mixed. I mean, the uh, the dialing back on on um, uh, equalization had already started. Uh, there was a, a new deal in in 1982, which uh, reduced the uh, the amount of equalization going to the uh, to, to the provincial governments and. You know, also reduced the amount the federal government was going to going to put into that. Um, but Mulroney was also responsible, on the other hand, um, to to this sort of entrenchment, if you will, of uh, provincial resource rights. Um, the Peter Lougheed, the Premier of Alberta, following the introduction of the National Energy Program, had you know gone a bit ballistic on the whole thing, but then he proceeded immediately to negotiate with the federal government. And within a year or less than a year, they had come up with an agreement. And you also note that Peter Lougheed was the Premier of Alberta when the Constitution was approved in, in 1982. So implicitly, you know, Alberta signed on to this whole notion of comparable uh, services at comparable rates of taxation. But Lougheed also agreed to a deal on uh, on the division of revenues from resources um, that was twice as good as what we have today. Mulroney came along, and for strictly political reasons, to uh, and and his his uh, energy minister uh, Pat Carney later acknowledged that their position on resources had basically been written by the oil industry, and that and so part of that was dismantling the National Energy Program. So in dismantling the National Energy Program, Mulroney essentially gave away about 50% of prospective revenues from, uh, uh, from, from oil and gas, the oil and gas industry. Um, so that, I think that 
was one of the sort of the the key like uh, developments under Mulroney that has kind of carried through to to today, where um, all you have to do is say national energy. I mean, as far as I know, uh, Pierre Trudeau's son, the current leader of the Liberal Party, it doesn't support the national energy program, right? So that very successful uh, slaying of that particular dragon, and Mulroney was a big part of it. Um, Mulroney also um, put the uh, put a lid on transfers for health and education called the established uh, programs financing. So provinces started to have uh, uh, greater difficulty financing their their healthcare programs. But the, on the other the other part of it was um, again, more, as I say, a mixed record. The uh, uh, as part of that mixed record, uh, Mulroney, of course, for his own bizarre reasons, um, wanted to get Quebec to sign on to the Constitution. Uh, as we know, that failed. Beach Lake failed. But then Mulroney sponsored the Charlottetown Accord, uh, which also failed. But the Charlottetown Accord um, was an improvement on uh, some of the social programs that would would have been an improvement. What they talked about was devolving greater powers to the provinces, but also um, beefing up the federal government's redistributive role and strengthening the equalization clauses in the Constitution. Unfortunately, that failed. Nobody talks about the Charlottetown Accord anymore. Um, but what succeeded, of course, as part of the what, what is perceived as the, the, the neoconservative uh, rise in, in Canada, what succeeded was, was, was the free trade uh, deal. And the, I would say the major impact of the free trade deal on, um, on the issue at hand was that it provided one more sort of rationale uh, for not sharing. One of the rationales for, uh, for sharing of the wealth was that it recirculated back. You know, the uh, money would come from Ottawa, collected disproportionately from Ontario, but people in Nova Scotia would, would, would then spend that money buying goods from Ontario. In the 30s um, and the 20s and, and back into the beginnings of the national policy in, in, uh, in, in, in the 19th century, that had, had some currency. By the time the actual free t- trade deal came along, the tariffs were so, so low that that probably didn't even exist. And uh, recent figures indicate that Ontario, uh, that, that the, the Maritimes... Uh, continue to buy huge amounts, huge quantities of goods from Ontario. So it's 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 probably a canard, but it provided one more rationale for dismantling that whole system because we don't need it anymore, or the equity isn't there because people people are buying their goods from all over the place. From Equal as Citizens: The Tumultuous and Troubled History of a Great Canadian Idea by Richard Starr. Between 1997 and 2012, per capita federal cash transfers to the provinces increased by 143%, according to Finance Canada figures. Ontario led the way with an increase of 255%, followed in order by British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Quebec. Manitoba, the Maritime Provinces, and Newfoundland combined received per capita increases of only 45%. The election of the Harper government in 2006 put a stop to any immediate prospect of improved equity through national programs such as early childhood education. 
The Harper conservatives made it clear in their first budget that it was their goal to shrink the size of the federal government and stay out of provincial jurisdiction. For the poorer provinces, the question became the extent to which the Conservatives would also shrink the transfers they would need to carry out those increased responsibilities. Looking at the Harper government's record over eight years, it is clear that their policies continued the trend favoring the richer provinces. This is no great surprise given the Conservatives' political base and their economic bent. What is discouraging is the lack of controversy surrounding this development. Perhaps Canadian society has become less generous toward others, even when those others just live in a different province. Perhaps we've become indifferent to and bored by the claims of provincial politicians for more money from Ottawa. Or perhaps we have simply been misinformed. Whatever the reason, Canada is moving farther away from achieving common citizenship, the goal of equal treatment in public services and taxation that once motivated our political leaders. You, you you talk about um, a kind of Robin Hood in reverse effect with uh, more money now under per capita funding, equal per capita funding, going to the richer provinces. Um, all funding. Not, yeah, if yeah. If you add them all up, if you add up, and it's no secret. I mean, it's it's on it's on the government of Canada's website. Uh, if you if you add up the equalization, uh, the Canada health transfer, Canada social transfer, you can see quite clearly that. Um, well, you can see quite clearly that in recent years, um, it's going disproportionately to the better off provinces. But if you trace it back, even to the ten or fifteen years, you you see that uh, that 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 has been the trend. And in the background to that, then is as a kind of uh, ideological war, a claim um, from pundits and and uh, politicians themselves that that maybe it should be that way, that the poorer parts of Canada should be pulling themselves up by the bootstraps and not depending on handouts from uh, the federal government and the richer provinces. You have a lot to say in your book about this. Um, what what happened there and is happening, I suppose? Well, I, I, I alluded to the, the, th- the think tanks a while ago, um, and uh, I think they've play, played a fairly per- pervasive role in that in, in, in getting that notion out there. Um, and to a considerable extent, um, our elites, if I can use that word, um, our political and, uh, and, and business elites have bought into that notion um, that uh, somehow we can turn back the forces of geography uh, and uh, and everything and suddenly pull ourselves up by the bootstrap and become a have province well in our history that the only way to be cut, to move from one to the other i mean ontario is moving perhaps <laughs> in the other direction but in our history the only way to move from one to the other is to strike oil and uh, you know how that can be somehow equated with pulling yourself up by the bootstraps i i'm not sure but that 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 fact is that fact is overlooked so on the one hand, we've got an anomaly here. We've got uh, Section 36 of the Constitution, which guarantees or at least refers to and talks about uh, comparable levels of services at comparable levels of taxation across the country, no matter where you are, in a rich province or in a poor one. We've got that. But on the other hand, it seems that in the mass media, we've got um, a prevailing frame that uh, talks about um, not giving handouts to to un- the undeserving. 
one of your chapters is called Changing the Frame. Um, what is that frame, and, and how could we go about changing it when it seems that the dialogue in the mass media and from the think tanks is so overwhelmingly biased against uh, transfers of wealth from the richer to the poorer? Well, I think one way is to read my book. I, you know, I mean, that's why I wrote it, because I, I think that it's important that people have a bit of the background, so some understanding of that. Know that Section 36, subsections 1 or 2 even exist, and then maybe start asking all politicians, essentially, because, I mean, as I say, all of the provinces signed on to that, as, as well as the federal government. Quebec didn't. But it wasn't because of that that Quebec didn't. So, you know, I'm using a bit of poetic license here and saying that everybody supposedly agrees with it. Well, I guess I would say, okay, how are we doing on that, right? In uh, Ontario, people have this kind of drug coverage, but I have to pay for that drug here. Or my nephew just moved to Alberta to take a job in the in the oil fields and, you know, talks in the Constitution about equal opportunity. Where's the equal opportunity? And look at my tax bill. I'm paying, you know, 15% provincial tax, whatever it is. Um, so what, what, what are you doing about living up to those aspirations, if you will, in the... Uh, in the, in, the, in, the, in the Constitution. You're listening on the New Books Network to an interview with Richard Starr, author of Equal as Citizens, The Tumultuous and Troubled History of a Great Canadian Idea. The interview is conducted by journalist Bruce Wark. Richard Starr, in your book, Equal as Citizens, uh, you have a, a last final chapter called Parting Shops, in which you uh, outline uh, a number of things that could be done to make us more equal, rich and poor together. And one of them, uh, you mentioned a carbon tax. How would that work? Well, it would be the, uh, I guess the principle would be uh, polluter pay. And uh, when it comes to fossil fuels, uh, Saskatchewan, God love them, and Alberta are by far the greatest producers of, uh, of, of greenhouse gases, which by all available evidence is, is a is a problem. So the way it would it would work would be that you would put a tax on that, and then you would distrib- use that to distribute to other provinces. Now, there's different ways you could do it. You could they could have the possibility could have uh, been implemented many many years ago to do it specifically within within the energy sector. We could have had a cap-and-trade system in uh, in Canada so that when Nova Scotia, for example, decreased its greenhouse gas emissions by 4, four megatons, which, you know, 8% or so, 10% or so, uh, there could have been some benefit accruing to the, the ratepayers uh, of Nova Scotia Power in Nova Scotia funded by a tax collected on the polluters in, out west, right? We could have done, we could have done that. Uh, we never set that up. Um, or you could simply have the uh, have the carbon tax distributed just generally across the country, regardless of uh, of uh, what their energy infrastructure happened to uh, happen to be. And the other part of it, though, is that again we have to change the terms of the debate. Um, when we continue to associate positive things with fossil fuel development, when in fact the evidence is that those. Uh, those fossil fuel 
development of fossil fuel are, are negative, essentially, for our long-term survival as human beings. We, we have to change the terms of the debate so that when people demonstrate in New Brunswick against fracking, they are not considered criminals. That, in fact, they are welcomed and seen as people who are trying to move us towards a different kind of, uh, a different kind of future. You've been listening to an interview with Richard Starr, author of Equal as Citizens, The Tumultuous and Troubled History of a Great Canadian Idea. The interviewer was Bruce Wark. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network.